Hello and welcome to the Me and My Golf podcast. We're your hosts and PGA coaches, Andy Proudman and Piers Ward. And these podcasts are really about one thing, making you better. Yes, on here we'll be sharing our own experiences and knowledge as players and coaches, as well as bringing to you special guests to help your game. Let's get into today's podcast and help you take charge of your game. Hi everybody, welcome to this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And as you can see, we have another special guest on this week's episode. We have Phil Kenyon. Now, Phil is actually a world-renowned putting coach, working with some of the best players in the world. He's worked with Rory McIlroy. He continues to work with Henrik Stenson. He's done Justin Rose. So many world top-class players that he's helped with their putting. And it's great to have him on the podcast today to share his knowledge and his passion for a very important part of the game that's often overlooked by a lot of golfers. So in this podcast, we talk about pace control, green reading, start line, how to get rid of the yips. It's packed full of some really useful things. But what we love about Phil's approach is it's very simple and very individual based as well. So I think you're going to enjoy this podcast with loads of take homes. So without further ado, please welcome Phil to the podcast. Phil Kenyon, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Uh, Yeah, good. Thank you. Good, good. And you, you guys? Yes, Great. we're uh, we're doing all right. Actually, we were just chatting before, and this this lockdown is um, we've 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 all taken the positives, which is good. And you've done the same, haven't you, as well? By the sounds of it, Phil. Yeah, yeah. I've I've tried to. I mean, it's just been it's been a nice sort of period to you know have at home, spend time with the family, you know, crack on with a few work things and a bit of education. And yeah, it's uh, it, well, it's been nice to sort of be in my own bed. Yeah. <laughs> for two months so no it's, it's been good but obviously um it's forced upon us but yeah. i think you know like you guys you just try and make the most of it don't you exactly exactly what you can do well it's great to have you on the podcast i mean look your knowledge and your information and, and what you do you know you're one of the best at the world in the world of what you do working with some incredible players I think for the listeners, it'd just be great to get a little bit of a, a brief backstory of, of how you've got to where you are, because I think it'll be an interesting story, and then we can dive deep into some of the, the, the details of that putting. Um, do you want the long version or the... Or the, or the <laughs> a brief, the, briefish. How long have we got? Briefish. Brief. Depends uh, how many great okay. stories you've got in it. <laughs> yeah. no, not that many, really. Um, no, I mean, like, oh, God. I uh, took up... My, I've come from a golfing family. My mum and dad um, introduced me to the game, started playing when I was about 11. And during that, those early years, I, you know, my dad, one of my dad's best friends was a guy called Harold Swash, who was an engineer and a designer of putters. And, and he became sort of a quite a prominent uh, putting coach. So I spent a lot of time around Harold and, um, through you know through my amateur days just being around him you know developed a really good relationship with him he helped me a lot with my own golf and um you know we developed a very good friendship now i went off to university and then um, when i finished university i turned professional i always wanted to do that i had aspirations of becoming a player and um you know, soon realized that I wasn't that good and, and maybe I, I needed to look elsewhere. So I started doing a bit of coaching and having kind of drifted a bit from Harold, Harold was like, well, why don't you come and help me? So I started doing some coaching. I was coaching down at Hillside and uh, where I was a member and, and you know, went through my PGA and then I started helping Harold. And, uh, you know, very quickly, I just got more and more involved with him. 
Um, and he was quite an enigmatic guy to be around. So I really enjoyed kind of working with him. And at that time as well, like uh, starting out as a coach, I had the opportunity to sort of be around a lot of good players, which, you know, is a, a big draw, isn't it, early on? Absolutely. So I kind of like, and I'd already always enjoyed the putting side of things and felt like I had a little bit of a head start by being around Harold as a player. So it was just something that I kind of gravitated towards early on. Got, you know, obviously got a great opportunity to work with him. And then it's just kind of snowballed from there, really. And, and Harold always encouraged me to kind of push on and do my own things within, you know, the, the work that we did together. And and he was getting towards the end of his career. And, um, you know, so that would kind of gave me a bit of a springboard to kind of kick on. And then what, you know, sort of... Oh, 16, 17 years later, you know, here we are, really. Brilliant. Unbelievable. And you've got a, a right list of people that you've worked with as well. So just, just go through some of the people that you've actually worked with so the listeners get a, a good idea if they don't know already. Um, well, I guess sort of current guys that I work with that the listeners might know would be, um, you know, Henrik Stenson, uh, Justin Rose, Tommy Fleetwood, uh, Francesco Molinari, Gary Woodland, um, and then there's you know a bunch of other players sort of who play European tour as well, sort of like Lee Westwood, um, Dave Horsey, Chris Wood, a few others. Um, worked with some other sort of prominent players over the years as well. Spent some time working with with, with Rory, uh, Darren Clark, Thomas Bjorn, people like that. So that must be that must be interesting when you're at a tournament because you, you've basically got 20 of your kids <laughs> vying for a tournament and you're going, I don't know which one I want to win. <laughs> um, do you know what? It, it, it's kind of that is a strange thing at times. I've been in some weird situations. I remember when I um, I just started working with Justin Rose in 2016 and we're a couple of events in and he's playing in the Olympics and I'd be, you know. I'd worked with Henrik for a number of years oh. and basically Henrik and Rosie are going head to head. <laughs> and I, I knew how much the Olympics meant to Henrik, you know, for him, like in Sweden, apparently the Olympics are massive mm. and it's always been a dream of his to, you know, win an Olympic medal. So I knew how much it meant for him. And then obviously you, I'm British. So I want kind of like, <laughs> you know, I'm rooting for Rosie as well. And it was, it's the most deflated I've ever been watching someone win because I, all I could feel was the pain for the other person. You know, yeah, it was kind of yeah, like, yeah. it was a really weird situation. So there is that. So I kind of try and sort of disengage, you know, disengage from that really when, um, when if you've got guys who are doing well competing against each other. As long as someone wins, I guess it's okay. Well, I'm pretty, pretty sure one of those guys are going to win that you've got there. They're all pretty good, aren't they? <laughs> They're always up yeah. there. Yeah. So in terms of your role then with these guys, what does that look like on a, on a week-to-week basis when you're out on tour? You know, what are the sort of things that you're, you're doing with the guys? Um, it, it, it probably comes across way more glamorous or technical or, um, than what it actually is, but a lot of times it's supervised practice. You know, I think uh, it's easy to look at a coach and, and, and think, well, you know, if you're at a tournament that you're giving a player like a new lesson every week. And it, it's not really like that. Um, I think, you know, when, when I set out coaching, I never envisaged that I'd travel to so many events and accompany players in the manner that I, I did. I thought it would be more of a consultation, you know, periodically you'd pass on advice. And 
But I think like the, the nature of putting and, and the fractions that you're dealing with at times, it's very hard for players to like monitor themselves. And so you, you're literally there a lot of times as a safety net and, and um, helping players structure practice and prepare accordingly. And I guess like they pass over some responsibility in that sense. Um, you know, so that at least, you know, when they go to a green, you're there to help them prepare in, in a manner that, you know, you see best fit. So it's not a case of working on like new technical things every week. It's just a case of a lot of the times just making sure the guys are doing what they, they know that they need to do and helping them prepare accordingly. Yeah. I suppose they say, can't. There's small margins, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose they can't afford to slip off for two or three weeks and then can then come and see you when the when it's all gone wrong i suppose so it's just that maintenance as well isn't it which is key yeah yeah i totally think that's the case isn't it because you know you you know a few degrees here and there and, and over a few weeks and things can get off kilt can't they and and so i think there is an, an element of that and the things that are a lot harder to see with the naked eye or manage yourself just through your own sort of thoughts and feelings so absolutely now now we know there's a, a a big difference between the tall players and amateur golfers obviously because you do coach amateur golfers as well obviously yeah what what is what are the biggest differences for you well um coordination would be the the big the biggest one i think yeah. you know putting's a very sort of uh individual part of the game i think you know and if you look at a lot of like good players that you can see a variety of techniques um, and they've got, you know, the amount of practice that they've done over the years and the level of coordination that they have, they can make a lot of different things work. Um, and I think like the average golfer, recreational golfer, you know, doesn't get as much time to practice, maybe hasn't sort of developed the coordination as well and generally have like a lot more moving parts. So they've got a lot more moving parts, don't coordinate them as well. And, that you know, as a consequence, they're not as as efficient as what we might see on TV at the weekend. So, um, and I think also, you know, good players they know they know the they they know what they do. It's not necessarily they know where they should be or what a perfect stroke should look like. They know their biases and and where their bad shot might come from, or the you know what they need to do to to manage you know themselves on a bad day. And I think sometimes, like the the you know, the amateur golfer doesn't um, that the maybe some of the advice that they've taken isn't necessarily applied to them specifically. It could be you know off their mate who's you know yeah. oh, you're doing this, you're doing that, and they work on the wrong concepts and they don't have great coordination and you know working on the wrong concepts as well. And you know all of a sudden it's not going so well, is it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's a key thing, isn't it? That, that brings me on to my next question in that, you know, you get a lot of golfers will come to you with a concept that they're trying to achieve and it's often not the right one. So I suppose it's like, well, what, what sort of, where should they be placing their attention and maybe what questions should they be asking themselves? Yeah, I, I definitely see that. I see a lot of poor concepts and I think like, you know, your concept will drive, drive your, skill acquisition day to day if you're trying to work towards something and uh, it's maybe a poor concept certain things that you're going to do are going to end up hurting you in, in an effort to meet that concept so having the right concept is really important um 
And I think also a lot of times with amateur golfers, they get really obsessed about certain aspects of technique, which aren't really that important, um, you know, that could be idiosyncratic to, um, to them. And they, they, they possibly get to put too much emphasis on certain technical things when it comes to putting and overlook some of the other things that which are equally, if not more important, and the skills that you require. So, you know, such things like green reading or, or speed control, developing good touch, they'll be obsessed by, oh, my path's out to win, or how do I, um, how do I stop doing this? You know, my head's moving. Little things like that, which you could say, well, actually, Luke Donald moves his head and Billy Mayfair cut across it. So, and, and they were pretty successful. So they'll often be obsessed about the things that don't necessarily matter too much. You can make it work with those things and then overlook the really important stuff. Yeah. Well, if you can't really green, then you are, you know, you're going to struggle. I think we see that as coaches as well, is that, that the amount of golfers who come to us and they're like, they want a putting lesson, for instance, or that we're, we're looking at their putting and they'll, they're all very much focused on the technical aspect. They're also focused on what's going on with the putter and, yeah. and to the point, and I know when we came and saw you with Aaron, and I think you, you use this word a lot, to the point that they completely almost let go of the intuition when they're on the greens because they're, they're not, they're so focused on, on the how they're going to yeah. do it instead of actually looking and being, let's say more external. And I think a lot of golfers, yeah. would you, would you say that's a, a trait amongst a lot of the, the amateurs more so? Um, yeah, I, I would say it's a general trait for a lot of golfers. And I think if you ever go down the road of trying to improve yourself, then obviously you always look at elements of your technique and I think then, you know, as golfers, inherently, we we can find ourselves in that place, can't we? Yeah. Um, so we all have to manage that. And, um, you know, I think that's like a, the challenge for, for coaches, isn't it, is is to try and make sure, like, you put the right information across, but also help the player, you know, tap into their intuition and, and you know, not be overly technical when they go play because we know, you know the, the the right mindset that you need to be in to go and play your best golf. So, we're, I think we're all guilty of that as golfers, and I think as coaches, we'll all be guilty of that ourselves. Of you know actually dragging the player down that route at times. So I think we all need to be mindful of you know the other side and and where you know where players need to be. Yeah, definitely. And on, on the golf course, I think one of the things that we always see on the golf course, we take a lot of our guys out there and play. Yeah, because um, we just think it's a really, I mean, such a key part to see what they're doing out there. And one of the things that we always notice is the the lack of attention to the routine in terms of just their structure yeah. and their process at how they go about reading a green, playing a putt. What what are the key components that that the uh, the guys listeners to this can, could take that that should be in a routine? Well, there's uh, you know a couple of key things in the routine first of all, is how you go about reading the green, you know, to find a, a process in which you can evaluate the break. Um, and there's different methods of green reading. But what I would say is, you know, like if I'm, I'll see a lot of amateur golfers play on a Wednesday at a tournament, you know, pro-am day. And it's so, <laughs> you know, the, the routine that they would have or the processes that they go about, it's just so random, isn't it? You know, mm. um, so I would say they don't have a consistent approach at a lot of times to how they would read a green. 
So if you've got a consistent approach where you're trying to evaluate a couple of different things to then help you predict break, you can, you'll get feedback. If you're consistent with those processes, if, if your prediction's out, then you've got feedback and you can refine that on your next read or next time you go practice. So if it's ad hoc and random, you know, the feedback that you're getting, you can't really refine and, and, and work with. So I think you've got to find a consistent way, a consistent approach to reading the green. That's the first thing. Um, I'm personally like for the a- average you know, golfer, big fan of aim point mm-hmm. because yeah. I think it can be a really simple process that can engage them. They've got something very structured that they can work towards and you can make a very quick read. Um, and they can learn from that as, as well, can't they? They've yeah. got that feedback, yeah. haven't they, straight away? Yeah, so if you go in and you feel it with your feet and you, you think it's a two, you hit it um, and it misses low, then it's more than a two Yeah. if you feel like you've hit a good putt. So, and that's what I'm on about. You've got feedback then that you can then apply for the rest of the round or, or, or whenever the next day. So I think you need to be consistent in that. And then I think you need to be consistent in how you use your eyes and your attentional focus. So how, you know, most of the putts that we hit on a golf course will be a breaking put. You get very few straight putts. And where you look on, on a slope can have a big impact on how you aim, how your stroke reacts to that slope. So, you know, being consistent, finding, first of all, the right attentional cues for you, the right sort of targeting strategy for you on a breaking put, that's critical. And then applying that consistently is important. And um, if you can do that, that's going to help you manage, you know, things like your start line. And if you can if you can be consistent with your break prediction, consistent with your start line, you've got half a chance and, and things like speed control actually get a lot easier. I'll see at times people's speed be so poor because their read is so far out or their strokes starting the ball in such a poor direction they're having to manage everything with speed so they pick such a low line having to jam it in and they miss it and they've got you know six foot coming back so they'd be the two things i think you've got to be really consistent at um because it's difficult to be consistent at times with your stroke you know every stroke's going to be a little different. We never made the same stroke twice, and that's a physical skill. But if you can be consistent with your processes, okay, you can be consistent with how you apply yourself, can't you? So, you know, how you go about reading the green, give yourself the best chance, and then, you know, that your attentional focus in your routine, and and then also, you know, your, your physical routine as you approach the ball there's things that we can control and be consistent with and that's going to help everything else as a consequence i think yeah definitely oh, definitely and, and and why do you think that why do you think the golfers are so bad at reading greens so you know the majority of golfers maybe under read puts and don't allow enough break what why do you think that is what do you think that sort of there's a result in that well i don't see enough golfers practice that yeah for, for one and i think also it you know, how we generally learn to read greens is through sort of trial and error and intuition. So you kind of learn it by your feel over the putt. And for a lot of golfers, that, that's going to be influenced by, you know, certain biases that they'll have in their stroke. You know, if they've got like a, a pull or big, you know, big pull or push bias, they're going to start sort of feeling different breaks on different slopes to help manage that. So the kind of whole learning process gets a bit skewed. So 
and then at the same time, you know, um, they're, they're not necessarily getting sort of feedback to help them, you know, realize that error. They yeah. could be holding puts um, through like a pull on an under read. So all of a sudden they think, oh, I've made a great read there. Yeah. So, so you know, they can learn these skills poorly whilst having success, I guess. Um, and then, you know, it's, I guess like if, you know, things aren't going well for that golf and, and then, you know, they decide to, or green reading is an issue, I don't see them going about, you know, really trying to, you know, make that part better. You know, were they, you know, consciously, um, you know, put some processes in place and some practice strategies in place to learn that skill. Um, I don't see golf, the average golfer practicing putting enough, if I'm honest. It's, yeah. you know, um, it'll typically be a bacon butty and a fag, one-handed puts, <laughs> warm up, and <laughs> onto the course, isn't it? Yeah. So It'd be great to would, see more people out there, you know, practicing reading the greens as opposed to actually working at their stroke because there's yeah. so much gains they could pick up pick up from that. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, 100%. I think, I think, I think, you know, I think whenever we address this with golfers, they, they always find it quite tedious to do that. Cause I think if they think they're spending time not hitting the ball, that they're, that they're wasting time. And I think that, you know, it just is, it, I think it's just common sense or the common sense for golfers in that if I'm hitting a ball, I'm practicing. If I'm not hitting the ball, I'm not practicing. Whereas, yeah. as well, from what you're saying there, it couldn't be further from the truth, could it? Yeah, yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, that that sort of sprung to mind an interesting story from a few years ago. I worked with David Howell a few years ago, and David's a really good putter, and uh, well, he's a fantastic putter actually. And mm. it, it, we we did some analysis on his stats, and although he was gaining over one shot per round, which is actually really good, he wasn't really gaining much inside of six feet. And um, we started looking at that, and and there was a strong pattern to under reading. And at the time, a few years ago, there was this sort of device that had come out into the market called a perfect putter, which is like a little ramp that you can roll the ball down. And I think originally, it was, you know, it's designed to kind of set up uh, drills, you know, gates that you could use on, you know, for breaking putts. And we had this device and I said to David, well, let's just walk around the green and read putts. And there's a little laser on this device and he'd walk around, he'd kind of pick his read, he'd line up this device to that read and then he'd roll the ball down. And uh, every time he did it, the, it was an underread. The ball would miss low. And, you know, and then he started to realize, well, yeah, I'm actually, after arguing with me that it wasn't read, <laughs> um, he, he, he then sort of picked up, actually, yeah, this is. The, and he was like, well, this is great practice. I should come and do this every day. So he got into this habit of actually bringing this device onto the green and walking around reading puts and not hitting a putt. Because you take out the element of poor aim, you take out the element of poor stroke, and you're just isolating that that, that component of, of yeah. the read, aren't you? Absolutely. And um, I think that's a, a great thing to do. I think it's a great device, and I'd encourage a lot of people, if they're really struggling with their green reading, to isolate that component, go out there and do something like that just to see how far off that they could be. Yeah. Yeah, that makes total sense, doesn't it? It makes total sense. And just whilst we're into that sort of stuff, obviously like a training aid like that, are there any other kind of training aids that you think would be um, worthwhile for golfers? I know that you've got a good range of them yourself, obviously, so feel free to plug those. But <laughs> what can what, what can really help? Uh, what, in terms of green reading? Uh, everything, in anything, general. Anything, anything in general, in general. Well, 
I mean, obviously, I have a vested in, interest in, in training aids, but I think it's a tricky a tricky thing, though, in that, you know, there are lots of different training aids out there, and, and some of them can actually really hurt you. Mm-hmm. It all depends on what you're trying to work on, isn't it? Yeah. And um, so you, you kind of need to match up any training device to relative to what your issue is. And I think the other thing is you need to use it in a manner that you don't become over-reliant on it. You, you're using it for feedback to help you generate a feel, and then you take away that feel and you go and perform with it. So I'll see a lot of uh, golfers use training aids poorly where they spend so much time on it that they kind of you're almost going to end up switching off from that feedback. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as you go away, you know, you can't really transfer anything with you. So yeah. you've got to find something that's relevant for you, and then you have to then structure that in your practice, you know, in a, in a smart manner. Um, you might use it for a few reps just to pick up a feel, go mm-hmm. away, hit some putts, you know, relate that feel to what you're you're trying to do, and then maybe go back and recalibrate yourself on on that training aid. Um, in terms of like generic training aids, which are suitable for everyone, um, I think things like. I think a lot of a lot of players don't realise how poor at times they could be at starting the ball on their intended line. So, like a, a, a training aid, training aid, I, I like, and I'll, I'll get a lot of players to use at times. And this is a great one that you could use in terms of green reading. Is a gate, you know, a little putting gate, and you know you can use two tee pegs or just, but you create a little funnel that you're going to try and hit the ball through. And uh, you know, for breaking putts, I think that's great because you've got to you've got to predict the break and then picture where you need to start the ball. And I, I see a lot of amateur golfers underread the first part of the putt, mm-hmm. so they, they uh, often will be closer to kind of if you got them to picture the curve, they could see where that ball could be coming in from, but they'll never work out how the ball would get there. Yeah. And by using sort of a start line device or um, uh, like a gate on your initial start line, it's really going to show them how far out that they could potentially be. And then obviously it's a great test to hit that ball on that line, isn't it? So it's going to cool. challenge your, your your sort of um, your stroke direction and start line. So that that would yeah. be a, a good drill that I would recommend. Putting and a gate. A, a- Again, as you say there as well, the majority of people, if they do get it through that gate, are probably going to end up low, aren't they? Because they're not aiming high enough. Yeah, I would see that. I, I would say as a general trait, you, you know, I see a lot of under-read puts on, on a pro-am. Yeah. And, you know, they under-read the first part of the put. And I think, you, you know, if you think about it, you're, you're over the ball, you hit the put. By the time you look up or actually manage to see <laughs> where that ball is, some people look up a bit earlier than others, but... The ball's on its way, isn't it? Yeah. So, like from a an intuitive sense of where that ball could could be coming in from, I think it's easier to pick pick that part, the put up, than it could be the first part. So whether you know historically that's why people underread that first part, I don't know, but I would definitely say that's a pattern that I would, a common pattern that I would see. Yeah. I like 100%. that. I think it's good to get that awareness, isn't it? And just put the focus. And I think a start gate just brings your focus to the right area. Yeah. Which is going to take care of that, isn't it, then? Which is good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Hi, guys. It's Andy here. Just wanted to interrupt the podcast just to let you know that our brand new coaching plan, Complete Putting, is now live. This has been something that we've been in the... It's been in the pipeline for a while now that we've been making behind the scenes and we're really excited about this one. This is one of our, if not the best, 
plan that we've done and it's something that you guys have been asking for really wanting to improve your putting improve your green reading understand equipment know what to practice find out what's causing you to stop three putting there's so much packed into this plan that we know is going to be massively helpful to you and it's four weeks that's all it is four week plan to help you improve and some of these skills that we that we talk you through as well as used by the best players in the world so if you want to check it out after this podcast then make sure you head over to me mygolf.com but for now let's get back to phil and regarding again look, we know that obviously this game almost the putting is a game within the game obviously and it's very personal but obviously there's a lot more information now about having a, a putter which is fitted to you so first of all how important is that and is there anything in particular when someone is going for a fitting are there any questions that a person needs to ask yeah i mean i think there's there's a lot of myths about putter fitting i think which um can be misleading obviously but i think you know it it putter fitting can be really important for some people and less less important for others mm-hmm. um now the 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 main parts of a putter fitting you've got you've got length line loft which are obvious aren't they and and, and like the length of the putter lying under the putter that's going to influence your setup mm-hmm. um, which is clearly going to influence potentially how you move now the other aspects of um, the putter fit would be putter the, the the configuration or the alignment lines, the shape of the putter that can influence your aim. So if you've got a particular aim bias that you, you're trying to fix, then finding the right putter could help you aim better. Um, you could have good aim, and then you pick a, a particular putter that could hurt your aim. Mm. So I think whenever you're looking at a putter fitting, you've got to consider how it impacts your aim. That's you know, n- number one. Um, and then the other thing that you, you're going to look at and it's going to influence some people and it's going to have no influence on others would be, and, and, and I think traditionally people look at this in terms of toe hang. So is it face balanced or, or does it have some degree of toe hang? Um, but I think what you have to also look is not just that the toe hang face balance issue, but the depth of the uh, the depth that the CG is relative to um, where the club is hosled, um, and when you're looking at toe hang depth of CG, what that can potentially uh, influence is the rate of rotation of the club. Mm-hmm. So I think there's an idea or this notion that if you have um, an arc to your putting stroke, you should use toe hang. If you have a fairly straight back, straight through stroke, you should use face balanced. And, you know, that really doesn't, I don't think that really runs true. You know, the mechanics of the stroke generally create the arc, but there's potential for the, the, the head style um, to influence the rate of rotation within within that arc. So that's what you need to look at. And if you've got, a, if you're a player that maybe struggles to leave, um, you know, struggles to release the club, you might be leaving the putter open then there could be a particular head shape that could help you square the club up. If you're someone who has a pull bias, the club comes in closed, then there could be a head shape that could potentially help you. So if you look at the physics of a toe balance putter, because of the, the forces that we apply to the club, particularly on the downswing, you know, all the forces applied in the direction of the target and there's potential for that toe to lag behind. So if you're someone who hits a lot of pushes and you've got a toe balance putter, 
then I'd test the face balance putter. And um, there are different types of face balance putters. There's face balance putters with the CGs far back or the CGs far forward. One of those could affect you negatively. One of those could affect you positively. And you, you, you really don't know until you test it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's important to go and get fitted. You know, there's some great technology available these days where you can measure the kinematics of the stroke and test you know, which, which one's going to help you in terms of that face angle. So, yeah, they're the things that I think you've got to consider. Head shape, head style, you know, the, the balance of the club. And that could influence rotation. It can influence aim, head shape, head style. And then you've got your basics of length, line, loft as well. You know, getting the right loft is going to be important to help the the launch and roll of the ball, which could influence, you know, speed control. Um, So, yeah, there are a few things to consider. And for some players, it will have way more of an impact than others. You know, some players I've tested where the head style makes virtually no difference. And then there's other players I've tested where it actually makes a big difference and they have to, you know, they have to use a certain category of putter to help them. It's interesting, isn't it? I suppose so anyone listening to this is go in with an open mind, go in asking lots of questions and, you know, don't perhaps go in with the idea of what you want already, but maybe go in with an idea of what you do in your game. So whether how good you are at reading, aiming and then obviously. Yeah. Definitely, I think go. I think the the fitter needs to have an open mind as well. <laughs> yes, of course. Because I think there's you know certain um, like uh, certain fixes that people have. Well, if you do this, you need to do this. And very often, until the player gets hold of that club, um, you really don't know how they're going to react. There was an interesting study done a few years ago by Sasha McKenzie. And they they actually measured the the forces that the golfer applied to the club, mm-hmm. and uh, they they created all these different clubs you know, different sort of toe hang face balance and uh, measured how the golfer reacted and the golfer reacted differently. You know, the, the, the forces that, that they applied to the club changed by virtue of the different sort of toe hang. And no, none of those golfers knew that, mm-hmm. but they, they were, you know, they applied different talk to the handle. So you, you really don't know until you give the, the, the golfer that club, how they're going to react. So, it, as a golf, if you're going into a fitting and you you know some of your biases, so you know that you have a little tendency to aim left, or you 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 know that you push puts, you know that's your bad put, or you struggle with speed. That's great information for the fitter because hopefully what they can then do is start to then align the characteristics of the club to try and help you manage that problem. Yeah, would it would it be? I've got a question that just popped into yeah. my head based on. If you're putting well and you feel like you're a good putter, is it a good idea to get your putter measured? Just for the simple fact, I was listening to uh, John Rahm was on the TaylorMade um, podcast with Chris Trott, and he was talking about how when he, he when he was putting well, when he first had Spider X, he, he was holding everything. And then it went off, but they'd found that the lie angle changed. It was only by a couple of degrees. But a couple of times his putting had gone off and actually the line angle had changed. Now, it's yeah. a bit diff- different for these guys. As you know, you're traveling different temperatures on a plane all the time. But is that a valid point if you've got something yeah, that's working that you get tested? I think so, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, and I think that's how we can use technology positively. So, you know, for me, when, if you like measure, I, I like to use technology to not just to measure the player to work out, you know, where they're going wrong and how you might improve them, but just to create a library of what they're doing. Mm. And and then you can always refer to that. So if something's off, you can then look at trends. And you might not always see that 
you know, when you capture something that exactly what's going on at that point in time. But when you kind of capture something over a period of time, you can see trends. Yeah. And then if something's going off, you have some evidence maybe to work, uh, to, to work back to. But I think like equipment wise, definitely, yeah. you know, checking your, your equipment. Uh, I know like a uh, uh, you know, guy I work with, Matt Fitzpatrick, he, he's had some issues with his equipment over the years. So the putter kept on bending. You know, so I think in transit, you know, okay. it'd get a knock and the lie angle and the loft would change. And um, a couple of times we got caught out by that. It was only kind of at the end of the week that he looked at his putter and thought, I've got no loft on this. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, those guys are lucky, aren't they? They have like, you know, trucks that travel yeah. around the world with them and they can go and get their loft and lie changed. But I think periodically checking, well, first of all, do you know your loft and lie? Yeah. I think a lot of amateur golfers well, wouldn't know at no. all. Um, and, you know, if you buy a putter off the shelf, do you know that loft and lie that's been yeah. sold at? Yeah. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of companies, you know, they'll let the odd product go out. <laughs> Maybe, you know. Slightly um, off. With a, slightly <laughs> off, yeah. Um, and I've seen that when, you know, students come into the studio. The first thing we do is to measure the loft and lie and, and – you know, measure the components of the club, and you think, "Geez, what, where's this come from? Do you know what loft this is?" Well, no idea. And you've got like five degrees of loft. So, yeah, you know, measuring the, the components of the club, understanding, you know, what your loft and lie is, length of club, and making a note of that. And and when you do get a chance, you know, go and get that checked because yeah. stuff moves. You know, particularly mm -hmm. a putter. You know, with these hoses and the soft mm -hmm. metals that you they have now things can very easily get knocked a degree or two here or there especially if you miss a few three footers they might get knocked a little bit <laughs> yeah, as well. yeah yeah they'll clang on a foot pass or get you know, a bit extra toe hang on the one <laughs> yeah exactly yeah okay right we've got, we've got to move to some questions from from our instagram actually uh yeah if we can phil uh, we've yeah. got one from Kamzi40. Uh, what are ways to work on your tempo when putting? There were quite a few questions on tempo, but I chose this guy. Yeah. Um, so tempo is obviously relates to sort of the timing, doesn't it, of, of the stroke? And you know, some players can have a quick tempo, and some players can can be slower. And I'm not I'm not particularly a believer that you know everyone has to have you know, across different players, you all have to have the same tempo, the same timing. You know, you'll look at, on average, on tour, it's about one second from, from setup to impact. But you're going to get players who are a bit slower, a bit, you know, a bit quicker. You know, Brad Schnedeker is a lot quicker than that. Lauren Roberts would have been way slower. So you kinda, you've got to find your own tempo, but you need to be consistent with that, don't you? And also um, rhythm, you know. The rhythm is the relationship between the backswing time and downswing time. And I, I would say you want to be consistent with that as well. So you've got to find a way to have consistent tempo and your swing length needs to match the length of the putt in order for your rhythm to be consistent. Now, there are ways that you can practice that. Um, I'm not a massive fan of metronomes because metronomes are equally spaced. And I think they it becomes difficult to use them because the the putting stroke isn't equally spaced and the key sort of components you're trying to look at is your, um, your backswing and then your downswing to impact time. And if you look at that, then you, you're looking in and around like a two to one ratio. So there are some golf specific apps 
and audio files that you can use that actually help with your tempo. So there's um, one thing called Tor Tempo, and um, there's a, an, another one called Putronome that I've, I've been involved in developing. And essentially what you can then do is you can pick a tempo that feels comfortable for you, and you could play that, and you're going to have a consistent tempo and a consistent rhythm. And that, what that's going to help you do, that's going to help you obviously choose the right swing length for any putt. Otherwise, you're not going to match speed. But it's going to give you a, a um, it's going to give you a feel for rhythm and tempo, and it's going to challenge you as to whether you can keep that consistent across all the different putt types. And I would say, you know, when you look at a lot of great putters, they do that intuitively. Yeah. You know, that's what they do, and they might never have been told that, but they just go and do it. And some people, for whatever way that they've learned or the concepts that they've had, they don't do it. But as a skill, if you can keep, you know, that rhythm and tempo the same, then I think that's going to help you, particularly in terms of, you know, distance control. Brilliant. Perfect. Yeah. Okay, and the next one, Ang Malakapai. Any tips on the yips? We had to get okay. a yips one in there, didn't we? So we had to get a yips one. Yeah, but well, we I actually did a yips Insta live the other week with Christian Marcard, which was quite interesting. We had some really good questions because Christian's sort of uh, an expert in yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So he's a uh, sort of did a lot of research in that. And uh, one of the things that Christian was talking about was was really it's a cognitive issue. Um, it's not like a focal dystonia where it's like deep rooted neurological thing. It's more of a cognitive thing. And, and basically, in layman's terms, it's like stop getting in your own way. Um, so he was talking about you know, a lot of over control. You know, at some point, people have become over controlling consciously that then um, basically breaks down. But I think, you know, there's at some point that that becomes some sort of learnt response as well. So, you know, that a lot of times people will have a tremor and not even realize it. And um one of the things that Christian talked about, which I was in agreement just from my own experiences, is you can rewire things and often like changes in grips, um, you know, can can trick the brain. And you, you, you can sort of combine that with a slight change in focus, You're trying to sort of be a little bit more freer, less controlling, stuff like that. And you can start to work your way out of it. And a lot of a lot of times that the the yip will be in the trail hand. And I think also there's a strong correlation with dominant hand as well. So a lot of right-handed golfers, you know, a lot of, a lot of right-handed people, and then a lot of right-handed golfers, and then your trail hand, your dominant hand. So that's why I think you see so many different grips nowadays where, um, and, you know, the, the sort of claw grips, pencil grips, these, these saw grips. If you feel like you've got a, a bit of a twitch in there, changing grip can kind of rewire things and it can be a, a quick way of um you know sort of tricking the brain and, and overcoming that a great way to actually test which hand it's in is to hit puts one-handed and uh, you know hit puts with your left hand hit puts with your right hand and just pay attention to what you're feeling and and, and often the you know the golfers can actually sense which hand the tremor's in Perfect. It's interesting you say there about about you know tricking the brain. I, I heard Adam Scott talking about the fact that not that he's got the yips, but he's obviously had. You'd say he's had putting issues in that he's changed putters obviously quite a lot, but he obviously is now putting with the broom handle, obviously not anchoring, but he won't use that when he's playing golf in a, in a friendly game. 
So he'll only right. use it when he competes. So what he wants to do is he'll he'll use any putter. He'll use any grip when he's actually doing a normal game of golf with his mates. He might just put normally or cack-handed or claw. But then when it comes to a tournament, he gets the broom handle out and he's using that. And he feels that it just keeps it fresh. fresh. Because if he keeps, yeah. keeps going with the same putter, the demons or the bad errors start to creep in. Interesting. I've, yeah, I've not heard him talk about that, but, mm-hmm. you know... Um, that's craft knowledge, isn't it? I guess you know, Absolutely. knowing know, knowing about how he reacts to certain stuff. So you know, I can appreciate that. Pretty smart. Mm. Pretty smart. Mm. Okay, um, one from Philip Bet. Um, short swing with more speed or long swing with less speed? Well, your your swing length has to match your tempo, as I mentioned before. So you'll get some guys who are you know high tempo and are going to have sort of more compact. Um, strokes and or the opposite of that uh, for me it, it doesn't really matter um, it it's more I, I don't I don't like to see a lot of acceleration uh, impact so I mean ultimately speed has to be the same you've got to deliver the speed the same speed at impact haven't you whether it's short or long so it could be I think the better way to phrase it would be shorter and quicker time wise or, or longer and slower um, but ultimately, the speed that you're delivering is going to be the same. Yeah. That you know, makes the ball go a certain distance. I don't like to see a ton of acceleration at, at impact. Um, I like to see fairly minimal acceleration. I think it's easier then to control your desired speed in and around impact. And um, timing, good swing length, well, as long as they match, you can, you can generate that same profile. So I think timing is individual. But sometimes I'll see someone who's slow and they're short. That's not a good match, then, isn't it? Because yeah. they're going to have to then over accelerate on the downswing. Um, it's you know, difficult to control speed as a consequence, and, and then you can get the other player who's who's quick and then long. Well, he's he's going to have to decelerate, isn't he? And then um, you know the rhythm's not going to be consistent. That, that rhythm, rather than we talk, you know, we talked about two to one ratio type thing. That that ratio could then be like one to one point, you know, one point five. Um, so. Really, there's an individual preference, like your timing. Your swing length just needs to match your timing. That's the most important thing. Okay, perfect. I like Thank it. You. I like it. Shall I go into the quick fire, Andy? Yes, Pierce. Are you good with that? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so we've just got some quick fire ones to finish off with. They never yeah. normally are, but they're always great, great <laughs> answers. Um, okay, so for the, for the average amateur, yeah. start line, pace control, or green reading? <laughs> Uh, it's so it's such a hard question because I think to, like, to generalize across like Horrible a body question. of people, it, it's really hard. Yeah. So I'm going to give you the long-winded answer. So a few yeah. years ago, I was I was in Australia and I did a clinic at Kingston Heath, and we had like a, a full day of working with the members, and I asked this question to every member that we went through, and probably about 20 members that we saw that day. What's the most important skill? Every one of them said speed. Every one of them. Now, if you've ever played Kingston Heath, the probably the quickest greens that you'll play on for, as a club golfer. So for them, speed was so important because if they're a fraction off, they're miles away from the hole. So there's it can vary from individual to individual, from golf club member to golf club member. You know, um, some people can have really good starting line control, but be really poor in, in green reading. So you've got to work out what your strengths and weaknesses are. And, yeah. and you know, I, I see a lot of issues with 
all amateur golfers. Um, you can get some amateur golfers who are fantastic sort of putters, you know, technically. They don't read greens very well, and I've seen some absolutely terrible green readers. <laughs> it, it's a difficult one, really. Yeah. It, I'm, I'm, I'm going to dodge that one <laughs> Do and say what? it depends. I think yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's 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 so evident, isn't it, that you know, with what we've done here, a lot of it really does depend. But I think it's all down to the person putting in the quality work, asking themselves the quality questions, and seeing what yeah. they get, as opposed to just hitting putts. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it goes back to that feedback, doesn't it? Again, really, mm. Phil. You know, yeah. it's it's, a, it's helping them understand actually. Well, what am I what am I bad at? If you've got a really yeah. good technical putter that that's putting bad. He might think that his technique's off <laughs> and then go down the technique train. You see that an awful lot. I would say that's, you know, particularly with good players, they'll always blame the technique, you know, put poorly, come in, blame the technique. And that's why I think if you structure your practice well, you'll always be getting feedback that's going to help you judge where you are, you know, at where you are in terms of your start line, where you are in terms of your speed and where you are in terms of your green reading. And, you know, there are three important skills, which although we try and separate them, it's difficult to really. I mean, we, you've got to kind of put them in the mix together. Um, but if you can judge yourself where you are and get feedback as to where you are across those three skills, then it's going to help you. You know, it's going to stop confusion. And that's one of the biggest things I see is, you know, guys will go out, put poorly and they haven't got a clue why. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, very good. Right, the second quick fire question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I dragged that one out. That's that me as well. That's me and Andy. Uh, best game changing putting advice you ever had? Oof. Best game changing putting advice I ever had. As a golfer myself, or as a as a coach, either whichever one stands out to you most. Oof. It's, that's, that's a really difficult question. I think one of the best experiences I've had as a coach was to start to have access to 3D data about how the body moved. And at first, when I looked at it, I thought, oh, my God, like <laughs> this is eye-opening really as to what's happening. But what it enabled me, I think it, what it really made me appreciate is how individual people are. Mm-hmm. that you never make the same stroke twice as a golfer and then there are never two strokes that are similar from player to player so it really made me appreciate how golfers use all the different degrees of freedom mm-hmm. and more than anything rather than trying to make things look nice it's more about uh, trying to work out how that golfer needs to move differently or better to create a more functional stroke so 3d getting into that you know, being able to measure stuff, you know, and see under the lid, under the bonnet, mm-hmm. which, you know, yeah, yeah. stuff that you can't see with your eyes at times. That That's probably one of the biggest, um, best experiences I've had as a coach, which has helped me, I'd kind say. Like an MRI. Love it. Yeah, Love it. yeah, definitely, yeah. Okay. Is there anything about golf that you would change? Oh, um, yeah, well... Not really, no. I, I think we've got it pretty good. I think it's yeah. a good sport, isn't it? I, you know, one, one, one thing that I thought was really disappointing was when they banned the long putter. Mm. Yes. I, I, I ban, ban it for professional golf. 
okay, if, you know, you feel like it's an equaliser for people, but you don't need to ban it for amateurs because you're taking away possibly yeah. some element of pleasure for some people because I've come across some really bad yippers, you know, yeah. club golfers, and, you know, have, being forced to use a, a short putter, you're taking away some element of, of pleasure and we're meant to be kind of encouraging people into the game. So that would be one thing. If someone said to me, tomorrow you can change a rule, I'd bring back the long putter at amateur level. Do you know what my argument with this was when they were talking about doing this? And it was, what was it, 2014 now, probably something like that, was it? Six years, years back ago? Now, yeah. My argument was that, well, was, well, if it's that good, why isn't everyone using it? Yeah. It's not yeah. as if it was a ball that was going 20 yards further. If it was a ball that was going 20 yards further, you didn't have to do anything different, you'd use it. But for me, I mean, I don't know what you, whether you've had a go with it, Andy. I, I, I wouldn't want to use it. <laughs> I wouldn't want to use it. One of those it. things. It was all over the place. And, yeah. I, and I, I didn't see it. I don't know. Did did you see it as an advantage anchoring? Um, I think you know for certain players it gave them it gave them an option, and without that they probably couldn't compete. But um, I don't think it was against the spirit of the game. Yeah. And and you know certainly like you say, I mean you could question it say at professional level, mm-hmm. and you know there's more of a debate there. But for the amateur golfer, I just think it was an absolutely pointless rule change. Yeah. You know, um, what, you know what? I don't know what they were achieving by doing that. that I, th- I think they'd be discouraging people rather than encouraging people. And and you know, like you, you could argue at professional level as to what 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 um, what impact it made. And is anchoring at your chest with one hand is that different to anchoring down your forearm with a putter? Yeah. So I think you know that's a bot a botched job rule change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think we've kind of answered this, but the one take home for the listeners, one thing they can get out of listening to this, what would it be? I think you 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 have to. You, it's difficult to do it on your own. Um, mm. I think you you need help. <laughs> I mean, I say this as a PJ pro and. But go take a lesson. <laughs> yeah. You know, try and yeah. try and get some constructive advice where yeah. you can start to identify the things that you do, and and then and create a plan to move forward with. You know, try and understand you know like your biases um, and what you need to do to manage them, and get a little practice plan. Go away yeah. and practice those things. So if you aim to put a poorly, find a way that you could calibrate. You know, good aim on a you know, uh, two or three times a week, uh, 10, 15 minutes. You know, if you've got a little technical issue with your setup, find something that you could, where you could practice your setup correctly, you know, 10, 15 minutes, three times a week. I don't see enough practice and I don't see it directed towards what their issues are. So, um, and I think the best, best way to do that is to go and get a lesson face to face lesson, ideally. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, nowadays, now there's some great stuff that you can do remotely, can't you? And, and you know, there's a lot of access to good information on the Internet. But you've got to, it's got to be well directed. Yes. I think golfers can poorly search for things. Mm-hmm. So if you can direct someone, you know, more accurately to the right information for them, then they've got to go away and practice it. So get some help. Get some help. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the best moment so far in your career? There must have been some decent ones, but what's the best one? Ooh. That's that's a tough one, really. I, I'm gonna. You can't not, say this I'm podcast, gonna, Phil. 
can't who's your, say this who's your favorite kid? <laughs> Clearly, this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> it's a highlight. Um, I would say the Ryder Cup 2018. Yeah, it's by far the best week I've ever had at a golf tournament. Wow. Um, it was amazing. Um, you know, I, it's like I've been lucky to work with players that have won majors and have been at that tournament that week and they're obviously fantastic and they're all different experiences for different reasons and it would be hard to and unfair to separate one of those and say well that was a you know that's the highlight it would be completely unfair but if I just take the whole week from like the start to the finish it was a, a to- it was an amazing experience to sort of be part of that like Thomas was a great captain you know, the coaches that were on site were really made to feel like part of that. I had like four players I was working with that week who like were a big part of that team, played well, and you were in and around that. And the crowds were amazing. The course was amazing. Everything about it was just like... So as a golf fan, just to have like a kind of inside seat on that was amazing. Um, yeah, I wasn't really doing any work. I was there as a sort of cheerleader. Yeah. But, you know... It culminated obviously in a win Sunday, and you know there was a, like a party afterwards, and to let your hair down, you know, with the with the guys, which you very rarely get chance to do. Yeah, and all the other sort of members of staff stuff like that. It was a, it was a really cool week. So I'll, I'll take that one to my grave with me. I think I'm, I'm smiling. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can't as a well, golf fan, you can't help but just smile to no. listen to that. Can you really? Yeah, Brilliant. it's a good tournament in you know, to watch on TV, isn't it? Never mind be oh, there. Yeah. yeah. Phenomenal. Well, phenomenal. Phil, look, thank you so much for your time. It's been great to have you on and share your knowledge. Pleasure. You know, you're doing yeah. some amazing things in the, in the world of golf and coaching. So really appreciate you being on. Oh, thanks for the invite. For the listeners to this, where can they go and find out more about you? Where can they connect with you? And, and what, what, what have you got coming up? You mentioned that you've just filmed some content as well. Yeah, so obviously I've been trying to kind of keep busy in the lockdown and, and um, uh, been trying to utilize my Instagram page to try and get some information out there to help golfers. So Phil Kenyon putting um, is my Instagram page and uh, Twitter um, Phil Kenyon put in on Facebook. Um, and we've got um, a giveaway series where we're going to put out some content um, in the middle of June, really, which hopefully will help help some golfers. Some um, looked at sort of three areas in terms of start line speed and read, and and um, develop some content, which I hope will help players improve those three areas. So, and where can they go for, for that? Because that'll be live. That'll be live now, actually. Yeah. So basically, if you go onto my Instagram page, you'll be able to find a link for that. And uh, they can download that uh, free content. The link will be in the bio, I assume. Sure, yeah, make sure yes. you check it out, guys. Yeah, yeah. Well, Phil, thank you well, so much. Thank you so much for being on. No pleasure. Thanks and, uh, for having me. Enjoyed it. Good luck for the rest of the season. Hopefully, we'll be back soon. Cheers. And you guys as well. All the best. Cheers. Thanks, Phil. Bye. So a big thank you to Phil there for giving up his time. It's great to have world-class coaches on here who really are at the top of their game, working with some of the best players in the world. And Phil is obviously super experienced, knows his stuff, and it's great for him to share some of the, the things there with us to hopefully help you guys get better, which is the most important thing. Now, remember, our plan has just gone live. Complete putting is now available on our website over at meandmygolf.com. We'd love you to check it out, and we have a very exciting challenge that's going to happen very soon with a 30-day challenge where you can get involved and win some amazing prizes. So make sure you head over to the website, meandmygolf.com, check it out, and we will see you soon.